right. This is your first time here. My name is Garrison, and I am uh, the, the pastor here at Veritas Dayton. Uh, we're very glad you're here. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 28 in chapter 1, and then we'll look at verses 15 to 25 in chapter 2. This is uh, the first sermon of our series on the family. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles on the uh, benches, white paperback Bibles on the benches. Uh, you can grab one of those, turn to page one, actually. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. Take it home, make it your own. Uh, if you would, just take a moment. There's a Connect card attached to the bulletin you received when you walked in this morning. Um, and then that's, that's just a good way for us to learn some information about you and, and uh, know how we can get in touch with you and get you uh, connected with what God is up to here at Veritas. And then particularly on the Connect card, there's a little space for prayer requests. Love to be able to pray for you this week. If, uh, if you would jot a few things down there, drop it in either this bucket or the black box on the welcome table. Uh, we, we'd count it a joy and an honor to be able to pray for you. All right. Let's dig into Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, and let's listen with reverence and joy. We're actually just going to read chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and then we're going to read chapter 2, 15 to 25. Let's listen with reverence and joy. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and now we read Genesis 2, 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for this text of beginnings where you reveal to us the goodness of your creation and your power and your kingly authority over all things. And we thank you for creating us in your image to exercise, to to have that authority that you have delegated to us to exercise it over all of creation, Lord, to be good stewards, to exercise gentle lordship over what you've made. Lord, and we thank you for making all things good and orderly and beautiful. And we confess that we get in the way of that, that we sin that we, rather than steward creation, we, we exploit it and treat it shamefully, or we worship it and we, we idolize it, Lord. And, and so we need your redemption. We need power of the gospel, of the grace of Jesus. We need to be reconciled to you and and reconciled uh, to one another and reconciled to the creation that you've made. Lord, we we need you for that, and we can do nothing apart from you. And so we trust you. We we ask now um, that you would uh, be with us and and work uh, among us as we dig into Genesis 1 and 2 here, Lord. Uh, Would you help me to get out of the way? Would you help me to be faithful to your word? Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight? Lord, and the meditations of all of our hearts to be acceptable in your sight because you are the Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer, our king, our everything. Lord, would you work among us now in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, have a seat. All right, so this is the first sermon in a four-week series on the family. Family, and, and we simply want to dig into God's Word to see what He says about why the family unit exists. Like, why is there this institution called the family that shares life together and reproduces and does all the things that families are supposed to do? How, how is it supposed to function? Why is it supposed to function in that way? Uh, and as we start this new sermon series, you might be wondering why would we have a sermon series on the family out of all the books of the Bible that we could dig into out of all the, the topics, the subjects in the Bible that we could and should and will look at uh, in the future in scriptures uh, to learn about God's character and the gospel and his commands and promises and requirements. Why a sermon series on the family? And the reasons are numerous, but let me uh, share with you at least six, and I might think of some more along the way. Uh, but for one, a quick inventory of this room and the gym behind me would reveal that even as a small church, I guess they're not in the gym this morning, are they? The library, the music room, a quick inventory of these areas would, would reveal to you that uh, we have an enormous amount of families in this church. Um, just an enormous amount of, of uh, new marriages and young marriages and, and young children, and, and it just keeps on growing. I feel like every time I turn around, a baby falls out of somebody. It's crazy. We just continually are are reproducing like rabbits. And most of us are very new at this. Um, The majority of us, not all of us, but the majority of us are are fairly new to marriage, are fairly new to parenting. And so we need to drink deeply of the well of God's infinite wisdom in his word concerning the family. He's the one that instituted it, that designed it, that created it. And so we need to receive a word from him concerning the family. Uh, Secondly, uh, 
because of the family's need for the church, the family's need of the church. Um, no, no matter where you're at here this morning, whether you're married with a full quiver or married with no kids, single, satisfied, or single and longing to be married, or, or a grandparent or divorced, or what, what, wherever you are this morning, no matter what stage of life you're in or circumstances you're in, we need to hear God's word from this because, uh, well, for one, uh, most of us will end up in families, uh, and every one of us comes from a family. But, but even if you don't, even if you're called by God to remain single, if you're single now, you're still a part of this church family, which has in it many families, many, many families. And you're called to share life with these people and to hold them accountable to these standards found in the scriptures. And you're to assist them in raising the billions of kids that this church is producing. Uh, this, this is your call as a member of this church family. And so my hope is that this sermon series would not make you feel like you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God because you're not. Uh, Jesus was the fullest expression of humanity, the most complete human that ever existed and he never married or had sex or had children. You, you, you don't need to do these things to, to be acceptable in the kingdom of God. Not at all. Please don't hear that. But also, uh, this is the church family that you're in. So, so please don't check out uh, as we get into this series. Because there are, ch- there are families in this church that, that need you, no matter what stage of life you're in. They need your accountability and care and help. They need your eyes and your ears as you share life with them. And I I won't be shy in saying this, like marriage and, and parenting is really hard work. It's really hard work. It's one of the biggest blessings I've ever received in my life, but it's really hard. I, I, I need the church. I need the people of God involved in my family's life. I need the people of God. I, I need you to know me and to know my wife and to know my children and to be known by us. We, we need the church, singles and families, older and younger. We need the church for the health and flourishing of our families. Third reason to do a series like this. Often, in the West, the family is viewed through the lens of the American dream rather than through the lens of the gospel. Uh, Even in the church, I think this has been tolerated amongst the church in the West for a long time now because it looks so damningly close to what the family should be. You know, husband and and wife and two kids, happy home, two-car garage, minivan, dad's got a great job, mom makes good meatloaf, junior and princess get good grades, and they go to church on Sunday. But you can have a happy home and look like this and still be on your way to hell. That is not the definition of success in the kingdom of God. And I'd argue that this is the case when the family is a means to the end, that we have a comfortable and satisfied and happy and respectable life. Instead, as what we'll see is the, me, the, the end for which the means of family exists is to glorify God by advancing his kingdom. That's the purpose of the family. And so for those lured to sleep by the American dream, the family is simply an institution that exists to serve our idols of comfort and happiness and wealth and respect. And of course, there's nothing wrong with uh, your family making you happy, but that's not ultimately why the family exists. And if that's your motivation, then you're on a fast track to destroying your family. 
Uh, fourth, and this is actually intimately connected to the third reason, uh, the family is being undermined through attempts to redefine and devalue it. Okay, so when the family becomes something that is a mere means to an end to give you a, a happy and satisfied life, then why not redefine it to, to suit whatever you think would make you happy or cast it aside when it's not making you happy anymore? And that's, that's the, the, the end of, of that uh, sort of pursuit to the, the life of the family. And there's no doubt this is taking place amongst many in uh, our age of, of relativism and situational ethics. And in some ways, this is not anything new. Um, if we were to read on into Genesis 3, we see that families were immediately facing difficulties from Genesis 3 onward. And this continues on in our time and, and place and in history, and it's manifesting itself in a rather peculiar way now with the redefinition of marriage and family and, and the seeing sexual ethics as being relative to whatever each individual thinks is best. And so as Christians, we need to be reminded how to think and feel rightly about the family. And fifth, and this is all, uh, intimately connected with the fourth reason, many are suffering due to the breakdown of the family. Whenever there's relational brokenness in your home, in your marriage, in your relationship with your parents or siblings, it hurts. You suffer. It hurts. Many are hurting and suffering because of this type of brokenness. Hearts are broken and lives are wrecked from this. And, and this hurts no matter who you are or what your income level is or, or, or your background. I, I wholeheartedly believe, though, that this has become so widespread because of what is commonly believed about the family and human sexuality now. When truth and ethics become relative or when we redefine sexuality to suit what we think is best or when politicians implement things like no-fault uh, divorce laws, people suffer. People suffer. Especially when that relativism and redefining the family trickles down to those living in poverty and those without the wealth and the social capital to recover from family brokenness like this. And the city that we live in and that we love is a clear example of this. Far too many children are growing up in homes without fathers, either due to divorce or being born out of wedlock. Uh, far too many homes, far too many children are being abused. Far too many women are being abused by husbands and abusive parents. There are children being killed by, by those who should be fighting hardest to protect them. There are wives and children being abandoned. There, there, there is sexual abuse in homes. And these are just a few of the many problems facing the family in our city. And this is a place where we as the church can step in and be the people of hope. We can be a family to those from this type of brokenness. And we can share with them good news that there is forgiveness and that Jesus is making all things new. We have good news to speak into the midst of this brokenness. And we have good news in terms of our ethics for what the family does and should look like. And so I believe wholeheartedly that, that as uh, this, this sort of movement goes forward, that there are going to be many coming as refugees of the sexual revolution to find hope and family in the church, and we need to be there for people to comfort them and help them. This culture cannot survive, and people cannot 
flourish in the midst of the redefinition of the family and no-fault divorce laws and situational sexual ethics and hyper-masculinity and the slew of other worldview issues facing our city and culture. People, people's lives are ruined while politicians and pop culture and liberal Christians and others play games with what God instituted for our flourishing, and we can be a people of hope in the midst of this. And sixth, the health of families often determines the health of the wider culture. Uh, you've likely heard it said, as it's often quoted, that as the family goes, so goes the nation. And to bring that down to a more uh, relatable level, as the family goes, so goes the church and our city. Um, most significant change that, that takes place um, in the church and city and culture takes place at the level of the family, at much smaller levels, uh, scattered, decentralized levels like that. It starts small and it becomes more widespread. Now, a reason, uh, a large reason why the city of Dayton is struggling in the way that it is because of the extraordinary amount of brokenness in families. And, and right now, many of us, uh, though not all, many of us are raising children who will be uh, working in and leading in and, Lord willing, investing their lives in our city in the years to come. What, what type of character will they have? What kind of worldview are we forming in them? What's, what sort of daily habits and routines are we putting in place to form their character and their worldview so that they would grow to be people that glorify God? And so those are a few reasons for a sermon series on the family. Now, as we begin this series, I want to begin with a kind of bird's eye view. That's what we're going to do this morning before digging in to how families are supposed to function and relate to one another as husbands and wives and parents and children and, and the rest of it. We, we want to go back to this very primary text of beginnings to see the purpose for the family. Uh, and, and God's purposes in creation, what, is the, what role is the family supposed to fill? In, in the Christian worldview, what is the role of the family? Uh, as you can imagine, we have a lot of work to do to kind of lay a foundation here. And so this morning, it's not going to be like a typical kind of sermon that you would hear uh, here uh, typically on a Sunday morning. Uh, there's not going to be as much practical application here. We'll deal with some big kind of sweeping subjects, and then we'll get more practical in the weeks to come. We're also going to be dealing with some ideas that may be kind of new for some of us, uh, such as the creation or cultural or dominion mandate, whatever you want to call it. Um, if you're a guest or you're not a Christian and you've caught us here on this particularly kind of odd Sunday, we're very glad you're here. Thank you for, for being here. Uh, I, I want to simply inform you that although you've joined us on a Sunday and in the midst of a sermon series where we are going to be talking about the family at length, uh, that... Uh, the most important thing to us as a church is not like conservative values or family values. The most important thing to us as a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the most important, the primary, most important thing to us. It's, it's that our righteous and holy God created us in his image to know him and glorify him and reflect him on the earth. Uh, but we've rebelled against him and 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 rebelled against him and are at war with him in our sin. But that God came to us in Jesus Christ, and he lived the righteous life that we should have lived, and he died the sinner's death that we deserve to die, and he rose again uh, so that we might be reconciled to God and be forgiven for our sins. 
And now he calls us to repent and trust in him for our salvation. We await his return when he will come, make all things new, and share his resurrection life with us. That's the most important thing to us as a church. That is the central and primary thing that we believe. But we also want to see how that message works itself out in ordinary, everyday life, which is why we would do a sermon series like this one. What does the gospel look like? What does it mean for how we live in our families. Now, for members of the church uh, and some of you who've been attending for some time, as we cover uh, such a big kind of picture, sweeping view of the family in the next 30 minutes or so, it might raise a lot of questions. Uh, You might have a a lot of of questions that arise that we won't have time to answer this morning. And if you have some burning questions about all of this, uh, I ask that you be patient. Uh, Be here for the scripture text and the sermons to come in the series, discuss your questions with your city group and others at church, and and feel free to come ask me or another leader here. But as for now, we're going to dig into Genesis 1 and 2 because having this foundation laid is essential when we begin to talk about all of this. Uh, Having something else other than God's purposes as the end for which the family exists is to build our homes on shifting and sinking sand. So look with me. This is our big idea for this morning. This is our big idea. God creates the family because we're made in his image and given the creation mandate. God creates the family because we're made in his image and given the creation mandate. As we unpack that kind of big idea this morning, um, we have to start with the reality that the family is God's idea. It's God's creation. For many of us, when we hear the word creation, we, we pretty much typically uh, go to thinking about things like nature and the solar system. We think of animals and plants and trees and planets swirling around in space and, and stars and, and all of that. And it's not wrong. That's, that's biblical, God created the material universe. We see that in Genesis 1 and the 6, let there be's. He creates night and day and land and oceans and plants and animals. Uh, But that's not all that we see him form and create in the first two chapters of Genesis. We also see the creation of certain institutions uh, like the creation mandate or what's often called the cultural mandate or dominion mandate. We'll learn more about that in a minute. Uh, But we also see the creation of the institution of of marriage and the family. Uh, In Genesis 2.18, we see this. Our creator God, he makes an observation. It's a very interesting observation. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. Uh, Now, this observation comes as a bit of a shock because this is before Genesis 3. Uh, This is before the fall of humanity into sin. And in the first chapter of Genesis, uh, we see after everything that the Lord creates, he steps back and he looks at what he's made and he says, it is good. It is good. He makes night and day and it's good. He he makes trees and and land and, and seas and he makes planets and it's good. He makes fish and birds and livestock and creeping things and beasts and it's all good. And then on the sixth day, he creates humanity and he finishes his work and he says, it is very good. But we see here in Genesis 2.18, he pumps the brakes and he says, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And so he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, we'll get to why it's not good for man to be alone in a moment. But for now, I just want us to see that, that God says it's not good for Adam to be alone And so he creates Eve from Adam's side, and he provides Eve as Adam's beloved wife to be his helper 
And this word helper here doesn't mean like servant, which you, you might be thinking it does. This, this word helper here is given, it's giving us a picture of someone who corresponds to Adam in order to create completion. Um, it's it's a, a word, it's a, a giving us a picture of being different, but in a complementary way. And so Adam, he sees Eve, and he sees the way that they're, they're complementing one another, and that they, they correspond to each other, and that they complete each other, and Adam is utterly amazed at her. So he sings her a song. It's beautiful. The first recorded song in Scripture, it wouldn't fit well on the top 40 CCM song list. It's a love song. In Genesis 2.23, we see Adam sing, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24 follows with, Therefore, completing the story, the, the story is told, and, and so because of the story just told, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so that's, What's taking place here is the institution of the family. Adam and Eve are created and are given to each other in marriage, and they are to become one flesh and consummate their marriage and have children. And then those children will grow up under the authority and care of their parents, and then they will leave the authority of their parents and marry and consummate their marriage and have children, and those children will grow up under the care and authority of their parents and leave the authority of their parents and marry and consummate and, and, and have children, and those children will repeat and repeat, and on and on it goes. And so one of the things I want us to see here in the scriptures is that this is God's idea. God is the one who instituted marriage and the family. The family is not just a good idea that we came up with to, in order to survive and, and reproduce and keep the human race going. It's God's idea. It's God's creation. And since the family is God's creation, that means that God gets to determine what the family is. The family is not this malleable, changeable thing that we get to define based on what we think is best or feel is best or, or that would make us most happy or fulfilled in life. Uh, it also means that God gets to determine how the family functions. Uh, since God is the creator of the family, he would be the one to ask because he knows best how the family should function. He would know how best husbands and wives should relate to each other. He would know best how parents and children and brothers and sisters should relate to one another. If you're here with us this morning, you're not a Christian, you might think that Christians' beliefs and, and ethics uh, regarding family and sexuality are outdated and, and regressive. You might think that the, the definition of marriage between one man and one woman and how we raise our children and, and our views of sex and how it should only take place within marriage are outdated and restrictive. And they are restrictive, actually. I wouldn't disagree with you. They're restrictive. We believe that there are certain restrictions placed on sex and marriage and family and parenting but in all reality, we all believe that there are restrictions placed on these things. We, we all believe that. The disagreements don't lie in the fact that we believe that there are restrictions placed on sexuality in the family, but the, the disagreement is on where we believe those restrictions lie. We all believe, at least I hope we all believe, uh, that young children shouldn't be able to marry uh, or that men shouldn't have multiple wives or anything like that, just to give two quick examples. 
So we all believe there are restrictions regarding the function and definition of marriage and, and family and sexuality. The reality is, though, restrictions aren't a bad thing. Restrictions aren't a bad thing. Restriction, when it comes to God's law, at least, does not pose a threat to freedom. As Christians, we don't believe that, that freedom and restriction are opposed to each other. As, as Christians, we believe, rather, that, that freedom is found in right restriction. Freedom is found in right restriction. I once heard a, a, a pastor use a fish in a fishbowl as an example for this sort of thing. Uh, when you see a fish in a fishbowl, you don't say, that poor fish, so bound and restricted by that water, I'm going to take it out of its bowl and set it free. You, of course, you would not do that because in taking the fish out of water, out of its bowl, you kill the fish. You, you don't take a fish out of its restrictions and its environment because to do that is to kill the fish. And so, so it is with living within God's design for how sexuality and the family works. It is defined and designed by God. Therefore, living within his definition and design leads to our freedom and flourishing. But then we also want to note that God doesn't just determine what the family is and how it functions, but also God gets to determine why the family exists. Uh, As we just looked at in Genesis 2.18, God makes the observation that it's not good for man to be alone. Now, if you want to be a part of an interesting experiment, you could go to the nearest Christian bookstore and search through the large amount of books on the family Uh, that speculate why that is, why it's not good for a man to be alone. And you're going to hear all sorts of fascinating theories uh, that that are really interesting. Uh, But to determine the why behind the family, the existence of the family, we need to understand what role humanity plays in creation in the first place. And to understand that, we need to go back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28 which records for us the creation of God's image, which will then lead to us unpacking uh, what those who are made in God's image are called to do in creation, uh, in the creation mandate. But take a look with me quickly at Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We'll just read it again. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so our triune God creates man and woman in his image and gives them dominion, uh, meaning he gives them the authority to rule over the world that he just created. Now, this is something very central to the life of Christianity. We believe that humanity, both male and female, are created in God's image to reflect and represent God on the earth. Like, we believe that if you want to know something about the glory and nature of God, you can take a look around this room, look at the people in front of you and sitting next to you, and you could speak with them, and that would tell you something about the glory of God himself. That, this is why Christians believe so strongly 
about the, the value and sanctity of human life. We, we believe that each and every single person has value and, and has dignity, no matter how young or how old they are, or how big or, or small, or whether they're in the womb or out, or how rich or poor they are, or their race or religion or language or sex. All people are made in God's image and all are to be regarded as such, to be valued and seen as having dignity. But now there's, there's been a lot of ink spilled concerning what it means that humanity is made in God's image. What, what does it mean? Some say it might be our capacity for, for language and communication or reason and morality or our capacity for love and commitment and creativity. And I believe that all that's true. Uh, but for our purposes this morning, I want to quickly talk about how we image God relationally and vocationally. We image God relationally and vocationally. And so as we talk about how we image God relationally, this, this centers on the belief that, that our God is a relational God. And so Christianity is uh, what's called a monotheistic religion, which means that we believe there's only one God. But we believe that our one God is also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they have always existed together in a loving, joy-filled relationship. This is what is called the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we, we see a little glimpse of this here in Genesis 1.26 where God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so, Throughout Scripture, we see this become more and more clear. In God, we see a unity of being and a diversity of persons. Each person is equal in essence, in being, but diverse in function and role. And, and I know that this all seems a bit technical, and it's, it, it is sort of, but it's very important because what this means is that for all of eternity past, there has always been love and relationship. There's never been a time where God wasn't in joy-filled, love-filled relationship with the three persons of the Trinity. And so as human beings made in God's image, we're created for relationship as well. You can see this in, in the diversity of men and women, too. Men and women are equal in essence and being, but different in complementary and roles. They're, though equal, men and women are not simply interchangeable. They're, they're different, and the difference is good because it reflects something of our triune God that created us. And this is, this is one reason why the family exists and is created, because as human beings made in God's image, men and women reflect something of our triune God in marriage. And of course, this relational image bearing doesn't just exist in marriage, but in relationships in general, uh, in, in any and all appropriate and healthy and, and good relationships. We resemble the image of our triune God, whether it be with friends in, in wider society or people that we work with or, or our extended family or those in our church family or wh wh whatever it might be, we image God in these relationships but this text speaks particularly of marriage as a man and a woman becoming one flesh, and in doing so, their bodies and their souls mingle together and they reflect in a very profound and precious way what God is like. But then there's also our vocational call in which we image God. You see, 
Uh, the original hearers of this text would have lived in a time and place where only kings and rulers were said to image God. Uh, the wealthy, the powerful, the governing authorities were God's image bearers, were seen to be God's image bearers who represented God on the earth, while the rest of humanity were of lesser value and dignity. And so you can imagine that uh, while when the Israelites were hearing this for the first time in this time and place and culture, they were a bit taken aback, a bit shocked by what they were hearing, by what this would mean. This means that when you stand in the presence of any and all human beings, even Israelites who were enslaved and abused for years, when you were standing in their presence, you were standing in the presence of royalty. You are standing in the presence of those who God has called to rule the earth on his behalf. You are standing in the presence of those who are called to be God's vice regents, those who ruled on his behalf, those with delegated authority who were to rule on the earth and to exercise dominion. Notice verse 26 again. It says, dominion, we're given dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. So that means we're given dominion or the authority to rule over the sea and the sky and the land and over all that inhabits those spheres. And this is where we see the creation mandate, uh, the third part of our big point. God creates the family because we're made in his image and given the creation mandate. And so God created the family because we image him in terms of our relationships and vocation. But also this vocation is given to us in the creation mandate. And this is the creation mandate. It's found in Genesis 1.28. I know that that's not something that's often talked about and it might be kind of foreign to you, but, but this is it. This is the creation mandate in, in Genesis 1.28 given to us by God, instituted by God for his image bearers. It says, and God blessed them and God said to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, God is depicted as this great and powerful king who creates heaven and earth as the domain of his kingdom. And then in his kingdom, in his creation, he orders things. In the first six days of creation, he orders things and he forms things and he fills it plants and animals and people, and then he places Adam in the garden, and he says, basically, be like me and do what I did. Do you see what I did in Genesis 1 here? Be like me and do what I just did. Be Lord, with a lowercase l, be Lord over my creation. He delegates his kingly authority to his image bearer, and then he says to Adam, have dominion over my creation." Subdue it, fill it, order it, cultivate it, develop it. All right, in other words, make manifest my kingly rule on the earth. This is what we were put here to do, to rule and have dominion over creation on behalf of our creator, God, and king. This is why in the beginning, in the beginning scene of the Bible, what do we see? We see a garden. But then what's the last scene of the Bible? We see a city. We see it go from a garden, a small garden, to a city that encompasses the entire heaven and earth. That's what we see. We see God calling humanity 
calling his image bearers to develop and cultivate and fill his creation. We're to exercise dominion over his creation. And this is, this is part of the reason why we as Christians don't believe that to follow Jesus, we all need to become like monks or, or pastors or something. This is why, as a pastor, I'll, I'll beg of you to become a doctor or an educator or a farmer or a musician or an artist, to, to take care of your yard and your garden, to go to school, to study biology, to study philosophy, to start businesses and build buildings, to clean up your house and, and, and clean up the, the trash in your neighborhood, work hard in your vocational calling, no matter what it is, do all of these things to the glory of God, to honor Him and reflect Him, to be obedient to the cultural mandate, to the creation mandate. And listen, that's also why we start families. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the world is a really big place, and as wonderful as Adam was, and as wonderful as everything was before uh, in, in the garden, before the fall in Genesis 3, there's just no way that he's going to develop and cultivate and subdue the earth on his own. And so it's not good for Adam to be alone because he cannot alone fill the earth and subdue it. He's going to need some help. And this is one of the foundational reasons that God created the family. Because his image bearers are given the task to cultivate, to develop the created order. So God gives Eve to Adam and tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Bill Edgar in his book, Created, created and Creating, said that crucial for fulfilling the cultural or creation mandate is the increase of the human race through reproduction and then spreading throughout the earth. So in other words, crucial for the fulfillment of the creation mandate is making babies, folks. I'm well aware I need to encourage some of you to do that. Uh, and so part of the task in the creation mandate is to fill the earth with more and more image bearers that honor and glorify God in the way that they cultivate and develop God's creation. And so not only will I beg of you to work hard in your vocation in a God-honoring, God-glorifying, God-reflecting way, I will also beg of you to raise your children, if you have children, to train them to do the same. This is what Adam and Eve and their children were called to do on the earth, to cultivate it, to develop it, to fill it, to subdue it. Now I know you might be thinking, though, the creation mandate was given in the garden, in Genesis 1 and 2, and you might be thinking about how things are, are different now. And we live in a time after Genesis 3 when the serpent comes and he, and he talks to Adam and Eve and talks them into eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we just read about in Genesis 2.17. Now humanity has rebelled against God and we're separated from him. Now Adam and Eve and all their children are spiritually dead. And doesn't that change everything? Well, Adam and Eve have and humanity has certainly changed, but God does not change, and his covenant and his creation mandate have not changed either. Think about the curses that we see in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve's rebellion. You can read these in Genesis 3 later on, but he doesn't say, notice he doesn't say, I take away your right to exercise dominion over the earth. 
That's not what he says. No, rather, he says, as, as R.C. Sproul Jr. puts it, that to, to sum it up, creation will be more stingy in its obedience now. So work will be more difficult. The ground will be harder to work and, and to cultivate. And likewise, they're, they're not told that they will no longer be fruitful and will no longer multiply, but rather that birthing children will be very painful. The job for us remains, but instead of exercising dominion in a world of peace and ease with God's blessing, we exercise dominion in a state of difficulty and warfare. And in God's infinite grace, though, he uses the means of the creation mandate also to send us our Savior. In Genesis 3, while God is pronouncing his curses, he talks to Adam and then to Eve and then to the serpent, the devil who tempted them. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Or I love how the NIV puts it, he shall crush your head, and you shall strike his heel. And so right after our fall into sin and rebellion, we see the first hint of the gospel of grace and the victory of Christ. In fact, theologians call this often the, the proto-gospel, the first gospel presentation in the Bible. It's a verse in which we're told that in the end, Christ and his kingdom will win. And when he shows up on the scene, he reiterates, actually. When Jesus comes, when this serpent-crushing king comes, when he shows up on the scene and he calls us to himself and calls us to join him, he reiterates the cultural mandate to us just in slightly different words. He tells us in Matthew 6, uh, 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in doing so, he, he's telling us to make manifest the kingship of God on the earth, just like Adam and Eve were told to do here in Genesis 1.28, here when they were told to exercise dominion. And then likewise, he sends us out in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus says, all authority or all dominion in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Does that sound familiar? All dominion, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is the mission that Adam was given in the garden and that Eve was called to be his helper in. And likewise, this is the mission that Jesus is given and we, the church, his bride, are called to be his helper in. This is why the family exists. The family exists to make manifest and to advance the kingdom of God. We do this by honoring God and representing God and reflecting God as we develop and create culture and marry and produce children and raise them to be little warriors in God's kingdom. This is why the family exists. The family exists to make manifest and to advance the kingdom of God. How boring is the American dream compared to that? How, how, how boring is stuff and comfort and consumerism compared to that? Why would we ever want to be lulled to sleep by the American dream and filling our houses full of stuff and its vision of the family when we could have eternal life in God's kingdom and push 
back darkness by making disciples and having children and changing diapers and doing nightly family worship and being artists and working in finance and planting trees and doing everything else that we do to the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom on the earth until we have our city. What would be better than that? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, starting in your home. This is the call, this is the purpose of the family, to glorify God, to exercise dominion under him on his behalf. And let's, let's learn about that in the weeks to come. That's what we're going to learn about. We're going to learn about how, to, how our marriages can exist for that end. We're going to learn about how our, our, our families, our, our children, our parenting can exist to that end. That's what we want to do in this sermon series. And so let's pray together, and we'll enter into a time of communion.